Hi, I'm Rudyard Griffiths, the Executive Director of The Hub. Welcome to In Conversation with Amanda Lang. On this program, you'll hear journalist and best-selling author Amanda Lang's analysis of contemporary events, issues, and ideas exclusively for The Hub. In Conversation with Amanda Lang is hosted by The Hub's editor-at-large, Sean Spear. If you're enjoying this program, please visit our website at www.thehub.ca for all kinds of great thinking and insights into the big issues and ideas driving the public conversation. The Hub's podcasts featuring Amanda Lang are generously supported by the Linda Frum and Howard Sokolowski Charitable Foundation. Welcome to Hub Dialogues. I'm your host, Sean Spear, editor-at-large at The Hub. I'm happy to be back in conversation with award-winning journalist and best-selling author Amanda Lang for another installment of our bi-weekly video and podcast series on the key issues concerning Canadian business, economics, and public policy. In today's conversation, we'll discuss Ottawa's plan to cap the international students who can attend Canadian universities and colleges and the bigger questions that it raises about how we fund post-secondary education across the country. We'll also cover a recent letter from the Business Council of Canada to Prime Minister Trudeau on what it thinks the government's policy priorities ought to be, and what it signals about the state of the business community's relationship with the Trudeau government. Amanda, thanks as always for joining us. Great to be here. Let's start with the announcement of a federal cap on the number of international student visas to be issued over the next couple of years, which amounts to a 35% cut to current levels. It follows a massive spike in the number of student visas, which has taken the share of tuition at Ontario universities paid by international students from 29% to 45% since just 2017. It could have major implications for a number of Canadian post-secondary institutions. What's your big picture reaction to the announcement and the factors that have led to it? So uh, I have two um, broad reactions, um, Sean, and I'll set aside the um, the fact that, that real people are involved here. So young people who wanted to come to Canada, some who've already made plans to come to Canada, those hopes will be dashed. So um, I say that with great sympathy to the people involved, because we know some of them, it's family life savings at stake, et cetera. This is a big opportunity. The th- things that occurred to me watching this story unfold, however, are First of all, this is kind of a major piece of policy uh, because it does have implications for immigration and housing and education. That it seems as though suddenly, you know, federal ministers are saying, well, we got to figure this out. Uh, And it it just leaves you feeling like it kind of evolved under their noses without anybody paying the slightest attention to it. It's been growing for years. um, And it just feels a little bit as though nobody was minding the store, which is never a comfortable feeling with, you know, the folks you send to Ottawa to do to do work for us. Um, And then the other big kind of piece I think is worth Canadians focusing on is what kind of post-secondary education do we want? Um, And, and, you know, I would say I have been uh, the the kind of Canadian or anyway, somebody who prides um, ourselves on having universal education, quote unquote, like universal health care, great leveling things that mean the opportunity is there for everybody it should therefore mean that they're not too expensive uh, to access and that they're possible to access, that there's room for Canadian students. Um, and international students, of course, can thwart that a little bit. So what we're seeing is, of course, this shift where universities need the revenue. You can charge more to these students so they become more attractive, crowding out possibly Canadian students, um, and then also changing the model. Is this taxpayer funded or not? And do we care about that, I guess? So those are the things that have been kind of rattling around in my mind as we watch this unfold. 
Yeah, tremendous insights as always. I want to take up your second point because I do think it raises some big questions about how we finance post-secondary education in Canada. The share of revenues to universities from government has either stagnated or actually fallen in some provinces. At the same time, provinces like Ontario have stringent caps on domestic tuition, which limits the ability of universities to generate their own source revenue. This, of course, Amanda, is in large part the reason why we've seen such growth in international students. They've effectively helped to fill this financial gap for universities. A recent Blue Ribbon panel report for the Ontario government warned about these trends and amongst other things, has recommended an increase in government funding, as well as higher domestic tuition rates. To what extent do you think this decision necessitates a, a broader rethink of how universities and colleges are funded in Canada? And, and do you think we're ready to have that type of conversation? Well, I think it certainly does. Uh, I don't know about a rethink because many of us would say we are we got it right. What it necessitates is attention being paid to government responsibility. So if we believe, and this, I guess these are the questions, and maybe they are um, election-worthy questions, but they aren't things that we shouldn't ignore. So I would say if we believe, that's the big if, that we should have publicly funded post-secondary education available to the broadest swath of Canadian students, as many Canadians I think do, then it should be publicly funded and it should be broadly accessible. Those are kind of the key concepts. So the, it's absolutely true that the government of Ontario saved itself money um, and created itself some fiscal room by limiting the ability of Ontario's universities um, to raise revenue. Uh, now, on the one hand, you can say, well, that means it's more accessible, kept tuition down for students. That's a good thing for students. We're not going to argue with that. On the other hand, it actually, because of the way they do formulas, it meant that they got less money. Well, it doesn't have to be that way. You can cap tuition and still give more money to the university. There's lots of mechanisms to support to support universities without just it being through that funding, uh, through tuition. So I would say uh, we, we we created this sort of wrong incentive uh, for the government when it's trying to save itself money to, to say we're going to squeeze this, the, the university. I don't think that's the, the correct approach if we believe it should be accessible. We created a problem there. And you know what? Markets rush to fill. Um, and universities aren't stupid. They're full of smart people. They have a business to run. They want to keep their doors open. And that, by the way, let's talk about that. The fact that a university like Queen's, one of our most august, longstanding uh, post-secondary universities, don't roll your eyes. Do you know people at Queen's you don't like? Uh, <laughs> is on the brink of some kind of financial difficulty. I find that shocking. What do you have against Queens? I don't have anything against Queens. But as you say, those political incentives have effectively led us into our current situation where we have governments effectively flatlining transfer payments to universities on one hand. On the other hand, for small p political reasons, essentially limiting their ability to raise tuition. And so universities have had to effectively innovate. And that innovation has come in the form of this massive spike in international students. I, I want to put one other kind of contextual piece before you, though, as we talk through these issues. One subject that we've discussed a lot at the Hub in the past few months, Amanda, is whether in the zero-sum world of public finance, Canadians are going to want to dedicate scarce resources to universities. Healthcare is already close to half of provincial program spending. Cumulative taxes are pretty high. There are various other demands on public resources from infrastructure to climate change to social welfare spending. And against this backdrop, I'd argue that universities have become increasingly isolated from the broader society, in part because they've been animated by a lot of fringe ideas. What do you think of that line of argument? And if you agree, 
What can university presidents do to restore the connection between their institutions and the societies that they inhabit? Yeah, I vehemently don't agree with the concept of removing a public support from Canadian universities. And, and I think the, the best argument for that is to look at other systems. Uh, and you get a very bifurcated uh, class system of, uh, of, of which citizens can afford good schools that put them on a good path and which cannot. And we look to the South for that. And I would just say our university system is not ideal, but it's very level. Uh, most Canadian, in, in an ideal scenario, most Canadian kids come out of Canadian high schools and can access our university system. And to me, that's the maybe I'm overly nostalgic about the world of my youth, but that's how it should be. It shouldn't break the bank. You should be able to get a post-secondary education in a world where that's now table stakes, or go get a college degree, or go get uh, some other certification, but with the taxpayer support that sets you up for life. Um, so I would say, if we're going to just kind of, you know place ourselves. I'm coming at it from that point of view, most clearly. So then you say, okay, well, uh, what do you do about the this limited capacity? We know we have that problem. I, I don't think this is the place that it should give, Sean. And I think, you know, the, the Hub and others have done really good work. There's much more to be done on how to do more with the money we have. Uh, and I think that's where we should be looking. And so healthcare would be a prime example of that. And universities would as well. And now to your second point, which is I think all the more reason not to tinker with it right now. Universities are failing us um, in ways in in the social, in, in, you know, in, in the social sphere. There's there seems to be no doubt about that. That there's something going on that um, is disconnected, and I think there is a responsibility on the part of the educators and the administrators of universities to understand the role they're playing in young people's lives. And it's not to inculcate them with ideology. Uh, it is not. It is to create an open forum for ideas of all types. Uh, and that sort of was the the standard. Um, and instead, we may have we may have seen a little bit of a traveling down a path that makes us uncomfortable. And it's been writ large because of a couple of key issues. We can course correct that. I don't think we need to throw out the baby with this bathwater. This is Amanda, I think roughly our 20th episode. And this is one of the first times where I'm afraid we disagree. I increasingly believe that we need to think more about the relative responsibility of students for the cost of their education and then the relative role of the broader society. You know, the, the principal argument for subsidizing tuition in the form of, of institutional funding from government to universities has been that it produces broad-based benefits, what economists call positive externalities. And, and I would say I'm, I'm not totally convinced for a couple of reasons. First of all, that we know from a large body of research that actually the students themselves get a lot of benefit, that the income gains associated with higher levels of education are quite strong. So in other words, in a way, people are investing in their future selves. And then as for the, the broader benefit to society, no doubt there are certain parts of the university campus that does produce broad-based benefits including investment and science and and so on. Um, but I've grown increasingly questioning, I guess I put it, about the extent to which the, the campus as it's currently constructed is producing broad-based benefits. And as you say, I think there is some onus on university presidents, administrators and others to, I think, establish in the minds of of Canadians that the universities are producing those types of benefits or in a world of scarcity, when there are competing fiscal pressures and competing political pressures, I, I do think there is a risk that universities start to kind of fall down the priority line. And, and in that context, 
something will have to give. Either tuition rates will have to go up or or some institutions will have to consolidate or, or even close. I, I think we are kind of living in a pivotal moment for the future of post-secondary in Canada. Could be. I mean, uh, uh, we can agree to disagree on this. I respect you deeply. Um, I think it's very healthy for you to be wrong now and then. It probably keeps, <laughs> keeps you humble. Um, no, I mean, I think I think Canadians would have a healthy debate about this. And I guess my 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 strong feeling is we should be having it, but we shouldn't let forces, uh, including limited government capacity, make these decisions for us. This is important. So, what do we believe? I would just say briefly, and we, we could debate this for a long time, but just, and I'm no expert here. I just have long held views about this. And I, I think that the economic data does bear it out. I mean, on externalities, uh, you know, the individual seeing their income improved is an externality, right? There's great societal benefits for that. And it does change the course of, uh, of that person. Yes, the, the, you could say that's an individual gain and they should invest in it. But I would say it's a collective gain as well. And we can all invest in it. So I think that cuts both ways. The only other point I would make is, We've seen what happens when you create a for-profit or a business mentality uh, in universities. There are bad outcomes. Um, and here I will go back to these international students, uh, you know, men, not, I don't know how many of whom, but we do know that there are many, many stories with these sort of fake diploma mills that are spinoffs of, of real places um, with, you know, so-called consultants in their home country that fleeces the whole family with great promises of, uh, of, of higher education and a promising career afterwards, none of which is true. The diploma isn't very good. The job is not there. Um, so uh, we're seeing abuse happening, in other words, to real humans, all in the name of revenue raising. So uh, is that the right approach? Or do, would we rather that that wasn't part of the spirit of a place of higher learning? Hey, Hub Podcast listener, you're just one click away from getting access to all of the Hub's best content. Visit www.thehub.ca for our original journalism, commentary, wine reviews, poetry. We've got it all. The thinking person's one-stop destination for news and information is www.thehub.ca. While you're there, sign up for our complimentary Hub membership. You'll get delivered to your inbox each and every Saturday a compilation of our best writing from the previous week. Again, free for you right now at www.thehub.ca. I agree, of course, that any types of reforms have to keep the kind of principle of egalitarianism, which, as you said earlier, has really been at the heart of how we've thought and talked about post-secondary education in Canada, a key part of any reform plan. But I want to raise the conversation up a few thousand feet and maybe get to a line of inquiry that I think we would agree on. In fact, it's something we've talked about in the past, which is that this whole issue strikes me as an inherently Canadian one, which is to say governments don't want to pay the full cost, but they're also not prepared to ask users to pay for it. So we look for some kind of stopgap. In this case, it's international students. At the more macro level, it's deficit financing. But the key question, it seems to me, is how can we move to a model whereby we can more efficiently and effectively decide what individuals ought to pay for, what we're collectively prepared to pay for, and then set tax rates, or in this case, tuition fees at the appropriate levels? Yeah, I don't disagree with that. Um, I guess I would ask you to show me the model in the world where that works well that isn't primarily uh, government funded. However, I think the, the point that you're hinting at, and here we vehemently agree, uh, is uh, we do need some real uh, adult and mature decision making on the part of policymakers to say, 
here is the limited pool that we have to play in. Uh, and where will we play, Canadians? Um, we're here to represent you. And I really do. Uh, it, and, it does, you know, we do see some of it. It just these are big, hard problems. And of course, when they're shared provincially and federally, they get even more complex, as we know. Um, but I just I do think it's time to have, and we're going to be forced to have them right now. When people like as smart and as influential as Sean Spear are saying, you know, let's shut down the publicly funded university system. We're past due on this debate, and we better we better see some public office holders start to pick it up and ask tough questions about resources and what we're going to do. Yeah, and I, I would just raise you know to, to the broader point. I, it does feel like in a world of of low interest rates, Amanda, we've had in effect, the kind of luxury to put off that conversation about what do we want government to do and what are we prepared to pay for? And one wonders if in this new interest rate environment, if if we'll have to confront those questions. I've, I've written at the Hub in the past several weeks about what I call government on Stephen Harper's tax rates, but Justin Trudeau's spending preferences. You know, that worked for a while. But when you look at what's going on with our public finances at the federal level, and increasingly at the provincial level, that dichotomy, you know, just seems unsustainable. And in some ways, universities are a microcosm of that of that inherent problem. So if we think they ought to be publicly funded, then, you know, we're going to have to figure out how to do that in a, in a world of provincial scarcity. And if we're not, then we're going to have to have a frank conversation about tuition rates. But either way, it is inherently unsustainable to ignore the problem and try to solve it through this massive increase in international students, which has caused a whole host of issues, including some of the real uh, episodes of human tragedy that you spoke about earlier. Yeah, I mean, I, I would just want to say that at the very end of his life, when he was um, changing his mind about things, including income splitting, I asked Jim Flaherty, um, wouldn't you, you know, wouldn't you roll back the GST uh, and take that big yawning hole in the government's uh, revenues out and put back the the billions that we've and he said nope I'm, I get up every day and I'm happy that people have that money in their pocket and it's exactly that sentiment that makes it hard to raise the GST but that's the kind of hard choice we might have to make right it's a you could go back up two percent we had it before we could have it again um, it wouldn't solve all problems boy and the world we're living in but it would close some gaps so yeah there are tough conversations ahead and we have to start having them that's a good segue to the second topic I wanted to cover, which is a letter this week from the Business Council of Canada to the Prime Minister. It was an uncharacteristic letter, Amanda, in the sense that it was a bit sharper than we've grown accustomed to. It, it said, amongst other things, that, quote, the government's failure to act with urgency has weakened and worsened our domestic economic growth, unquote. Were you surprised by the letter's tough tone? And if so, what does it say about the business community's approach to the Trudeau government at this point? I was surprised. This is it is a it is a tough letter. Uh, the sentence that jumped out at me in this, they're they're highlighting three areas of disappointment: um, the the fiscal responsibility, impact assessment, so getting um, getting you know resource deals done, and the energy transition to catch us up to what they're doing in the states. And the language they use: perhaps nowhere has the government's inability to deliver on its commitments been more frustrating than. Uh, wow, this is not conciliatory language, um, and this is not in the room language either. I have to say, I don't know about you, but to me, that's that struck me as they're outside of the room, and therefore this is the only way they can communicate. So that's a breakdown, I would say. Uh, it is a, a level of frustration, and where this, and I'll tell you what was striking is we did see the prime minister address this coming out of the cabinet retreat. He was asked about the business uh, council's letter. 
And just to, to, to remind people, uh, the Business Council represents, of course, yes, a broad range, but the, often the biggest uh, companies in the country. Uh, so big employers, in other words, uh, but probably I would say uh, I'm going to I'm just guessing here because, of course, small employers employ most of Canadians. But I'm going to guess somewhere like 40 to 50 percent of Canadians are represented by the Business Council of Canada, just off the top of my head. Anyway, not immaterial. We work for them. In other words, there are there are employers. <laughs> they They matter. And uh, the, the prime minister basically said, yeah, business wants that, but I'm more concerned about what Canadians need. And I couldn't help thinking that's those are two different things. Those are that's the same thing. What business wants is what Canadians need, because if there is no business that functions and invests and grows, we don't have jobs. Uh, we don't have things to buy and we don't have uh, anything to hope for. So it becomes a little bit troubling to me when not only is the business council outside the room, but the prime minister wants them there. Yeah. In that vein, Amanda, what in your mind are the consequences of the growing business government divide in Ottawa and arguably across the country? And how do we rebalance that relationship in a more constructive way? So those are, are I mean, the how we rebalance is a tough one. Um, I think listen, being open to listening. I mean, I, I, I would have liked to see a prime minister come out and say, um, I hear these concerns. We are, you know, we're they're difficult. We're working through them. We're maybe we're letting them down, but it's not because we want to. Uh, whatever you say when you want to keep somebody close and and working on your team. Um, now, I I think businesses would say the consequence of these problems, especially sort of the fiscal uncertainty, the regulatory uncertainty, the unequal. They would say uh, sort of tax incentive system we're now dealing with thanks to the IRA in the U.S. Is they don't want to invest. They they feel a level of um, uncertainty and unease, and so they're not investing. Now, I will. I'm here to say, yes, and they have a responsibility to invest anyway. And I'm not going to put all of this on business uh, on government. If you run a business, um, buying back shares is lazy, um, and I get it. There's a whole a whole confluence of things that go into that. But I wish Canadian business leaders would just invest anyway, um, just because we need them to. It's, it's we're in dire trouble here because they're not. But if they're telling us there's a reason for it and you're the government, you should probably listen. And they are saying these are the reasons. Yeah, I would just put on the table a few different contextual factors that I think are key to understanding the evolving relationship between business and government, which, you know, one might argue is particularly fraught with the Trudeau government. But the truth is, this trend has really been happening since, you know, the epoch of business government relations, arguably in the Mulroney years. You know, one factor, of course, is the elimination of corporate donations. So corporations and business leaders just matter less in our politics than they used to. Another is that we're living in a populist moment, you know, that's not limited to Canada. So even though Justin Trudeau is not perceived as a quote unquote populist, he's still kind of swimming in the bathwater of a, of a kind of populist political context. And so, you know, lining up with business would come with uh, with serious Political risks. I experienced this, Amanda, when I worked for the Harper government, and the government was carrying out its plan to lower the corporate tax rate from 22 to ultimately 15 percent. There was a lot of demands. I don't mind saying, even within the government itself, to reverse those tax cuts because they were seen as, you know, quote unquote, giveaways to business. And then, just the last thing I would say is, at different times over the past 40 years or so, had a pretty coherent 
set of expectations or demands out of government policy. Think of free trade in the 1980s or deficit reduction in the 1990s. I think in some ways uh, there's an onus on business itself to sort of conceptualize its vision or priorities for the country that it feels oftentimes on on the part of policymakers like the relationship has become kind of inherently transactional where individual businesses or sectoral representatives come in and they demand a tax incentive here or a regulatory change there or whatever but it's they're lacking the kind of big picture vision that i think was really at the heart of some of the success that business had in the 1980s and 1990s in terms of of influencing the agenda so it's a very long way of saying there are sort of inherent incentives pushing in this direction. I think obviously the Trio government's sort of ideological preferences are also sort of pushing up against a more constructive relationship with with business. But as you say, I do think there is some onus on the sector itself, not merely to blame politics, um, but to look at its own set of priorities and the way it thinks and talks about the country. Yeah, I mean, I, I would first say I agree that this is part of broader political trends. And we talked before about the fact that Pierre Polyev has similar anti-business um, rhetoric. Uh, and I think it's, I think, also borne out by action. In other words, it's not just, it would be bad enough if our politicians got in front of microphones and said anti-business things. But then at least in the back rooms, they were cooperative and they talked and they were open. I, I think actually the, the rooms are closed. Business is outside the room. So that's a problem. Um, I guess where I'm disappointed is I understand that populism is, of course, the low-hanging fruit uh, for the political class right now. My issue is uh, it, it isn't anti-populist to be pro-business, and that's where. And I know that's a that's a road people have to travel. Uh, we are anti-business in this country in a way that I've always been bemused by. Uh, when you just look at the simple facts, which is um, business isn't some monolithic other thing. Business is your next door neighbor. Business is your son. Business is everybody around you all the time. Just getting up and doing things, having ideas and putting one foot in front of the other and taking risks. And it should be celebrated. There's nothing we do uh, in this country that isn't supported by, made better by business. Uh, and so I, I don't know if we need a different name for it. The business council may represent some of the very biggest businesses and employers. Those are our champions. Those are the ones we should be celebrating. They go out in the world and, uh, and, and represent Canada and they employ tens of thousands of Canadians. And they are the ones with deep research pockets to help support universities and their research. So the, the whole anti-business, the fact that business can't be populist, I push back on it's when we're talking about Canadians, we're talking about business. That's my frustration. It seems um, it just seems to me facile and ignoring uh, sort of some obvious things that, that these people are way too smart not to understand. So I'm not saying anything they don't all understand. They've just decided this is the course. To your point about messaging, I guess I agree. On the other hand, I don't know if I really want um, what are really lobby groups kind of fashioning uh, economic policy. But yes, maybe on green rather than just saying, you know, do more. Sure. If businesses, you know, all of them big and small could get together and say, is there something as clear as free trade? Is there something as foundational as that? Um, yeah, maybe they should. Maybe they should come and say, here's the price that needs to be put on carbon, or here's the cap and trade system that would make our world work better, or we're all in on hydrogen, you should be too. I just don't, th I think their issues are too complex and they're waiting for government to lead. So uh, I hear you on that. I don't know if I fully agree on that. Well, a couple of disagreements today, Amanda, and that should spice things up a bit for our listeners and viewers. I want to thank you for joining me and, and I look forward to catching up in a couple of weeks. It's always good to talk, Sean. 
Thank you for listening to In Conversation with Amanda Lang, brought to you by The Hub, Canada's leading source for analysis and insights on public policy. We hope you enjoyed this episode. Please do share your favorite Hub podcast with friends and family, subscribe wherever you get your audio online, and leave us a review and rating. You can also access a video version of this recording anytime on YouTube. Simply search for The Hub or The Hub Canada, or visit our website at www.thehub.ca. I'm The Hub's Executive Director, Rudyard Griffiths. The host of today's program was Sean Spear, The Hub's Editor-at-Large. This episode was produced by Amal Atar Guzman. The Hub's audio producers are Alex Glutch and David Matta. The Hub's podcasts featuring Amanda Lang are generously supported by the Linda Frum and Howard Sokolowski Charitable Foundation.